0: You're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, the Earls family did a great job with that. The words of the song go like this. We three kings of Orient are, bearing gifts we traverse afar. Field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. The star of wonder, star of night, star with royal beauty bright, westward leading, still proceeding, guide us with thy perfect light. Now we sing the songs of those wise men, and I love all the songs of Christmas. I love all the standards, all the songs that we sing around Christmas time. But what if I told you that Matthew chapter 2 was not a song or a passage about three kings, but the tale of two kings? The Matthew, the gospel writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, brings us a comparison between King Herod and King Jesus. In fact, if you take your worship guide there, center at the bottom of that page, is a bit of a thesis statement of what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 2. That in Matthew's gospel, if we were to distill it down into one statement, we would say this. The second chapter of Matthew's gospel compares and contrasts two different kings. We get the perspective of Herod from his palace in Jerusalem and the perspective of Jesus from a home in Bethlehem. So grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 2 if you haven't already. and We're going to dive into this passage and begin to study Matthew chapter 2 where we compare and contrast these two different kings. King Herod from his lofty palace in Jerusalem and King Jesus from a home in Bethlehem. As you're turning there, I want to remind those who are here in the room and those who are worshiping with us online that uh, now is kind of the time of year when you start those Bible reading plans, when you begin to say, okay, in 2021, I'm going to read the Bible more. I'm going to get in there. I'm really going to do it. And there's a great tool to do that that I want to make you aware of. When you scan that QR code and it takes you to the worship guide, if you're Worshiping with us at home, and you scan that QR code, it takes you to the Uversion Bible app. This is the most well known of the Bible apps. It's the one that just says Holy Bible there on your app screen. And when you go in there, if you click on reading plans, or if you just go to Bible.com and click on reading plans, there are t- literally hundreds of reading plans. And these hundreds of reading plans, Are all different topics, all different parts of the Bible, all different passages. And the length of those reading plans can go from seven days to 365 days. So don't jump in and feel like I've got to read the Bible from cover to cover. Uh, Like usually Leviticus and Numbers is where a lot of Bible reading plans go to die. And uh, you'll get to kind of February or so, and then you kind of get bogged down. So if you've never done that before, it's just too much uh, to do, but you want to start reading your Bible in 2021. And then grab one of those other Bible reading plans. Pick a topic that you're really going through and begin with that and just start that habit in your everyday life and then move on from there. And then cover a different passage of scripture, different portion, different area of scripture and use that as a great tool to begin to read your Bible. So, as you've grabbed your worship guide, you've got your Bible, you've got a pen. Number 1 on your worship guide is this. We're going to compare and contrast these two kings. The first king is Herod, the king of the Jews. This is Herod the king of the Jews. Did you notice in the first couple of verses, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Now keep in mind, Herod lives in a palace in Jerusalem. He is one of the rulers kind of set up and backed by and financed by Rome. And so he's already in a kind of a a place, a home, a palace, if you will, that is for his position, that would fit his position. And here these dignitaries from the east, obviously well-connected and well-educated and politically astute, have no problem getting an audience with King Herod. And they walk in front of King Herod this representative of the Roman Empire at the time who is over this little corner of the world and they walk right up to him and say, so where's the king of the Jews? Now what's Herod's response? What would he be thinking? You're looking at him. It's me. He would have been shocked to think that you're going to come from that far and you're going to make your entrance into my town and you're going to walk in front of my seat where I sit in this political power and you're going to ask me where the king is? I am the king. It would have been shocking to him. In fact, apparently it was so shocking to him that if you walk through the rest of Matthew chapter 2, nowhere else does he use the word king. Nowhere else does he refer to Jesus as a king. In fact, he just mentions Messiah as this might have some religious component, but we're not really going to call him a king. So what do we know about this Herod? What do we know about this guy who's now confronted with this entourage coming from the east? Well, in the words of the great first century historian Josephus, he says these in this ancient document, you're a mean one, Herod. You really are a heel. You're as cuddly as a cactus. You're as charming as an eel. Herod, you're a bad banana with a greasy black peel. You're a monster, Herod. Your heart's an empty hole and your brain's full of spiders. You got garlic in your soul, Herod. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half foot pole. Now, those may not be Josephus' exact words from the first century but they're close. And that's pretty much what everybody thought of Herod. Herod as actually on the wrong side of a Roman civil war. He kind of backed the wrong horse in the Roman civil war, but the Roman Senate declared him the king of the Jews. They declared him the king over this little part of the world. And the reason they did that was because in this little part of the world, he was really good at building statues to the emperor of Rome. See, he was a builder. He was really good at building things and they kind of liked that. And so he built statues to the new Roman Empire, and he rebuilt the temple complex. The temple that had previously been destroyed, he rebuilt it in really great, great size and great splendor. Even later in your gospel, the disciples will comment on how amazing the temple is. They'll take a step back and look at this gigantic temple complex, this second temple that Jesus will interact with, and they'll be amazed. They'll comment on just how incredible this whole temple complex has become. And so Herod's a great builder, and with his building skills, the the best thing that he has, the best skill that he has, is kind of keeping things at a low boil between the Jews and the Gentiles. Kind of keeping everything steady. Not a lot of news headlines come out of this part of the world that get back to Rome and get back to his bosses that would kind of rat him out on maybe he's not totally keeping this little corner of the world under control. In fact, in his personal life, Historians would tell us that he would extort, blackmail, kidnap, torture, and execute people for his own power. Over the course of his life, he would kill one wife and three sons for perceived threats to his power. He believed that not only was he the rightful ruler of this little corner of the Roman Empire, it was his birthright. He was raised Jewish and kind of understood their world. He was backed by Rome and kind of understood them. And so he believed this was really his corner of the world. But notice it's not only Herod that is shocked when these wise men arrive to see this king of the Jews. Notice the reaction in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. You know, politics and power and connectedness hasn't changed all that much. Can you imagine the constellations of ministries and organizations and political parties and community groups and all these things that got their power from King Herod? You see, if Rome backs King Herod, and King Herod's kind of in charge of this area, then all of these ministries and organizations and, and Pharisees and Sadducees and community groups and political parties and all these political action committees all receive their power from Herod. And so now this entourage has gone into town, and they're all a little nervous. All of Jerusalem is reacting to this entourage that's shown up politically well-connected, well-educated, obviously fairly wealthy. This entourage moves into Jerusalem, and now it's not just a threat to Herod, but all of Jerusalem's reacting. Because if that's a threat to Herod, that might be a threat to my power. That might be a threat to my position. That might be a threat to who I am and where I get my power from. But Herod's pretty perceptive. He's a pretty smart guy. He's latched onto this power. He's made his moves. And so he perceives that there's kind of a religious component to this whole thing. Notice what he says in verse 4. Notice who he consults to get his answer to this question. Verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Then he told them in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophets, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come, come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people." They essentially give him a mashup of 2 Samuel and the prophet Micah. And in that mashup, they say, well, this is where that Messiah, this Savior, is supposed to be born. It's supposed to be in Bethlehem in Judea, just not too far away from here. So Herod's pride leads to paranoia. He fears that he might be losing his grip on his power. So then in verse 7, he takes them aside. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly Ascertain from them what time the star had appeared. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child when you found him. Bring me word for I too may come and worship him. Later in Matthew chapter 2, you see the plot to kill Jesus. He's so prideful, he's so paranoid, so fearful that he would lose a grip on his own power that later in Matthew chapter 2, he actually creates a policy whereby they would kill every child, every boy that was the age of Jesus and under. It's horrific. It's evil. Now, as Pastor Scott mentioned last week, Bethlehem didn't have major roads going in and major roads going out. It was not a humongous town. In fact, this policy might have killed 15 to 20 young boys, 15 to 20 toddlers, which is horrific and evil. But historians don't even track it compared to all of the evil that herod did in those days compared to his sons and his wife and all the things he did this is just a blip on the historical radar now mind you an angel has warned jesus family and they've already fled to egypt to go and to escape this evil but imagine that's 15 or 20 little brothers sons people you would have known in your family, a small, tight-knit community like that, everybody would have known somebody that dealt with that policy, that remembered that day. When the Bible talks about the weeping and wailing of the mothers in Bethlehem, they would have known exactly what that passage was talking about. Senseless, senseless evil. So we've got a pretty good picture of King Herod, right? We've got a pretty good picture of who he was and how his power was threatened and how he could absolutely not have that. What an affront to him it was that these wise men would come and ask to see the king of the Jews. So let's look at the second king in Matthew chapter 2. Number 2, Jesus, the king of kings. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it had come to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Did you notice how Jesus did not have to manipulate anyone to worship him? He didn't have to make conjole anyone or threaten anyone. He didn't have a constellation of organizations that received their power from him. In fact, all of creation was pointing towards the birth of Jesus. Now whether this star was a natural phenomenon that just happened naturally or whether it was a miraculous star is really kind of immaterial. It's kind of a miracle either way. I, I prefer to think that Maybe this was a natural phenomenon, something that naturally occurred within creation, or at least we would say naturally occurred within creation. And simply from the beginning of time, from the way that God set the constellations into orbit, all things were pointing to himself. All things were pointing to us to worship King Jesus. From the very beginning of creation in Genesis, that he set a star in place that would rise and fall right over Bethlehem. Now, to move from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and to follow the star surely is miraculous. But these wise men follow him, and that's their direction to go and worship. Not being conjoled, not being manipulated, not having their arm twisted. All of creation is looking forward to their Savior. All of creation is moving forward to this moment. In fact, I hope that you never come in this room and feel like you have to worship God because you owe him one. Feel like you have to come in this room or there where you are at home and that you have to worship God because, well, I kind of owe him one. He's done something for me, now I need to do something for him. In fact, all of creation is moving towards worshiping Jesus. You should worship him for who he is as the creator and the king of kings. his power and control over our lives, not because you feel manipulated to do so. So these wise men show up at this house Reaching back a little bit into verse 9, it says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold, just like today, was a precious metal. Not everybody had gold, and so only kings could get it, only royalty. Living in a rich nation like ours, where we kind of see it around when you shop and watches and rings and that kind of thing, but to Most of the world, even now, you never own any gold. You couldn't own much of it at all. And so for them to show up with gold shows incredible wealth. It's a royal gift fit for a king. They brought frankincense. It's a rosin from a tree that grows in Arabia and India. It was imported, and this rosin from this tree would be used in cosmetics or be used in recipes, and only the finest, finest recipes or only the the grandest occasions would you ever use that rosin, that frankincense that had to be shipped in from so far away. Any foreign or imported good brings with it that price tag that, man, it's going to take a lot to get it here. It's going to take a lot to get this product all the way to where I can use it. So once it arrives at me, at my possession, I'm not going to use it very flippantly, right? Only on the most special occasions would I use that frankincense. And finally, myrrh. It was a spice, and it was used on very special occasions as well. People have made a lot of how it was used in embalming, and that is true. They would sometimes put myrrh on a body that they'd put in a tomb to kind of give dignity to that person, to give that worth and dignity that it wouldn't smell, that it would smell good in the tomb, and it would be a fragrant embalming spice, but it was used for celebrations too. And I think in this setting, Matthew hasn't yet kind of developed that theme yet, and so maybe this was just a celebration spice, just something that you, when you smelled it, you thought, oh man, the celebration is on, the party is on. So these are the gifts that these wise men bring to the King of Kings. By the time the wise men arrived, Jesus would have been maybe one or two years old. We're not really sure. It would have been a toddler, and you kind of think about that picture. You think, did someone hand him a glass bottle, and he's sitting there holding it as the whole room gasps and dives to make sure it doesn't break. Think about a toddler playing with a piece of gold like it's anything else he could chew on. The preciousness of those gifts laid out in front of him in a humble home in Bethlehem. And here this toddler is playing with these precious, precious things. Verse 11, and going to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. The most important part of Matthew chapter 2, I believe, is verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. You see, Christmas was really about worship. Have you noticed that theme throughout that passage? Did you pick up on that key word that kept coming up over and over again the end of verse two it says have come to worship him end of verse eight i too come and worship him that's herod trying to get into the act the middle of verse 11 and they fell down and worshiped him you see worship is really an appraisal it's an appraisal of worth when we worship something we're appraising it If you were to sell your home today, there would be an appraisal. Somebody would come by and appraise your home. They would look at it from top to bottom, and they would say, based on all the other homes in your area and all the other homes on your street, here's how much your home is appraised for. This is the value of your home. Same thing if you inherited a piece of jewelry and you took it to a jeweler. They would look at it for strengths and weaknesses, for is it rare or is it common? They would give you an appraisal of the worth of that piece of jewelry compared to all the other pieces of jewelry that are made. This is the appraisal of that piece. I think this is why we love Antique Roadshow, right? You love someone who found something in a box in an attic, and yet when the appraisal starts, they appraise it for much, much, much more value. It's far more rare than they ever believed. Worship is an appraisal. Think about the wise men. The wise men appraised the time that it took to travel, the expense that it took to travel, the gifts that they were bringing, the families they left behind, the political connections back in their home country that went dormant. All of these things were appraised of less value than worshipping King Jesus. They would stumble over the gold. They would stumble over the frankincense. They would stumble over the myrrh in order to worship the King of Kings. They appraised everything else in their life. It was of less value than worshiping a toddler. How embarrassing. How humiliating. Well-educated, rich, politically well-connected. Go get an audience with Herod anytime you want. Those kind of guys fall over the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh to lay before a toddler and say, this is the king of kings. So I have to ask us the same question this morning. As we sit in with Matthew chapter 2 and authority over us, we have to ask ourselves the same question. How do I appraise the King of Kings? How do I worship him? If your view of the King of Kings, if your appraisal of the value of the King of Kings in your life is low, your worship will be low. If you appraise the value of the King of Kings in your life, the appraisal of all the other gods and all the other things you could spend your time and money and effort doing, if you appraise him as medium, your worship will be medium. But if you appraise him as high, if your appraisal of the King of Kings is high, then nothing can get in the way of you worshiping King of Kings. If you, like the wise men, appraise everything else in your life as of little value so that you can stumble over all of that to somehow lay prostrate before the King of Kings, well, then you've really begun to worship. So often in my own life, it's kind of counterintuitive because I like my stuff and I like my priorities and I like my structure and I like my order and all the way that I do things. But oftentimes my view, my appraisal of God and my worship of him is tied to my level of joy. When my worship is low, my joy is low. When my worship is medium, my joy is medium. When my worship is high, my joy is high. How did the wise men enter into that home? With joy. joy. With joy, they hit that door and flung it open and stumbled all over those expensive gifts to get to the King of Kings. So, are you going to appraise In 2021, worshiping the King of Kings, over the time that it took to get there, the expense, family relationships, political relationships, work relationships, leaving all that behind to go and worship the King of Kings just like the wise men did? Is that your appraisal of the King of Kings? So often we have so much stuff, we're so blessed. The one thing that we have to stumble over sometimes it's the worship of ourselves. It's usually just worshiping me and what I want. The biggest thing that gets in my way is not gold and frankincense and myrrh. It's just worshiping myself. Putting myself as the king of myself rather than going to worship the king of kings. We would be remiss this morning if we did not give you an opportunity to worship the king of kings that we would respond to Matthew chapter 2 and say, well, if that's the response, if we appraise the value of the King of Kings higher than everything else, well, then let's take some time to worship him. So how do we worship the King of Kings? (laughs) Do we do that by simply closing our eyes? And in closing our eyes, we just gain access to the King of Kings. Maybe you're not a praying person, you're watching online, and you're not a praying person or a Christian person. You're thinking, what do these people do? They just close their eyes and say some magical words and that gains them access to the King of Kings? Worship is that easy? It's that accessible? In a sense it is, in a way it is. But also in a sense, when we close our eyes and when we say these words, when we pray later on in the service, reflecting on something that really did happen, a way that we could gain access to God, in a special way that God gave us to remember what it took for us to gain access to God. There's a special symbol, a special ceremony that we have that reminds us of all that it took for us to gain access to worship the King of Kings, just like the wise men did in Matthew chapter two. The first is how we gain that access. Not by simply closing our eyes and saying some magic words, but actually in reality, God knew every evil thought we had ever had, every evil thing we'd ever done. All the bad stuff we'd done, all the bad stuff we'd thought, God knew it all. And he knew that that sin would separate us from himself. And so in that separation, that sin had to go somewhere. God did not simply just look the other way, give us a second chance, sweep it under the rug. God looked directly at our sin, all out there in front of him, stuff we've never told another soul about. He looked at just bold face, looked at our sin and said, "I'm going to send my son to die for that sin." In fact, my son Jesus will be the substitute that will go and hang on a cross, and our sins will be placed on him. Our sin would be placed on the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, that he would die on a cross. That's how we get rid of our sin, and that's how we gain access to go and to worship the King of Kings. And without that sacrifice, without our sin going on to someone else, going on to Jesus, well, we, we wouldn't have this kind of access to worship the King like we do now. So it's a pretty special thing. Many of you in this room, by grace and through faith, you've experienced that. You've repented of that sin and placed your faith in Christ. That when Christ died on the cross, my sins were transferred onto him. He took my place. He substituted himself in my place. So things are right with God right now, but things may not be right with someone else. So in other passages in Scripture where Paul talks about it in other places, because this little time we're about to have together is so special, Because it's so special, then we need to be right with each other. Sometimes forgiveness needs to be asked for, and forgiveness needs to be granted. Grace needs to be asked for, and grace needs to be granted. If you're cross with someone else, if you have a lack of forgiveness in a relationship, we ask that you not take the Lord's Supper this morning. It's not that you can never take the Lord's Supper. It's not a lifetime ban. Simply not Today. And the lack of taking the Lord's Supper today should put a fire inside of you that burns for reconciliation, for forgiveness. Even if the thing or relationship you're trying to repair is some immovable object, or seemingly immovable, because you wouldn't partake in the Lord's Supper this morning until that reconciliation has been done. Then the next time we have the Lord's Supper, you can be filled with joy. Praise the Lord. For forgiveness that was asked for and forgiveness that was granted. And so if you would, take the cup you received when you walked in. This is that special symbol that was given to us to remember that day where we could stumble all over everything else on our way to worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.